The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Does anybody know anything about John Bunyan? Who is John Bunyan? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, a couple of you. Well, I guess I only, almost only have one goal here, and that's to just do such a great sell job on Pilgrim's Progress that you all go home and read it. Um, it's just one of the most phenomenal books of Christian exhortation you could ever read in your life. Just an incredible book uh, and well worth reading. And John Bunyan did a lot in his life other than write Pilgrim's Progress, but this is his, in my opinion, his most significant contribution to the Christian church. What I gave you there, other than the outline, is a kind of a picture, depiction of everything that goes on in Pilgrim's Progress. It's basically the whole story of Pilgrim's Progress. The problem is that it's not very clear. Um, but in the book, it, it really is. And as you read across, you'd, you'd start, you all have the picture? You start in the upper upper left-hand corner and go across and then go down, go back to the left-hand margin, go across, and that's kind of that's the whole story of, of the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we're going to get into that toward the end, but the first thing I would like to do is just go over over his life. Now, uh, I called it uh, the Prattle of the Tinker because uh, of a comment made by the King of England concerning John Bunyan. Uh, John Owen was probably the leading... Uh, Puritan theologian, probably one of the most brilliant men that ever lived, a tremendous theologian, very intelligent man, a, a super genius really, uh, and his writings and his, and his theology, uh, very, very complex and well stated, and uh, he's just one of the most polished theologians. He was also an upper crust kind of person, so he was personally ministering to the king. You have to understand the stratification of uh, English society. They're not, it's not like us where, you know, our documents say all men are created equal, that kind of thing. There's a definite level that you're in in society, almost like a caste system. And Owen was at a very high level and was ministering directly to the king. Anyway, John Owen was one of the founding fathers of congregationalism. He was the dean of Christ Church, Cromwell's vice chancellor, a guy well worth studying. Another time, if we ever get to Heroes of the Faith Part 2, we might do John Owen. Um, frequently preached in uh, the church where many of the famous Puritan leaders heard him preach and the king frequently attended as well. Can you imagine being minister to the king? That would be uh, an, an amazing burden and challenge, especially in the 17th century. But uh, he had a conversation with King Charles II. The king is reported to have asked Owen on one occasion how a learned man like him could go here a tinker prate. Now, prate means prattle, just rattle on like his words were worthless. Now, what is a tinker? A tinker is basically somebody who travels around and fixes pots and pans. I mean, you're talking about the, the most blue-collar guy you can imagine uh, at the lowest rung of society. And Owen was frequently slipping off to go hear Bunyan preach. He just could not get enough of hearing Bunyan preach. He said, how can you go listen to him? How can you go hear a tinker pray? To which the great theologian answered, may it please your majesty, could I possess the tinker's ability for preaching, I would willingly relinquish all my learning. I'd trade it all if I could preach like that. And he was not the only one that felt that way. Hundreds and even thousands would go hear him preach uh, and listen to what he had to say. But more than anything, it's Pilgrim's Progress, the writing that he left, that left an indelible mark on the future of Christianity. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. What's an allegory? 
Yeah, it's a symbolic story in which certain things in the story represent other things. And what is Pilgrim's Progress, by allegory, trying to represent? The Christian life, from conversion to glorification. It's the sense of the journey of the Christian life. Uh, you may not know this, but Pilgrim's Progress is the number one all-time bestseller of any book that's ever been written except one, the Bible. And so it's number two, and it's glad to be number two, does not want to be number one, okay? But it's the number one book. It's been translated into more languages than any other book. Um, almost everywhere that missionaries went, uh, they brought with them, of course, the scriptures and would want to translate the scriptures, but it wasn't long after that uh, Pilgrim's Progress would be translated. Recently, the Chinese government um, authorized a limited press run of Pilgrim's Progress, 200,000 copies uh, in the Chinese language uh, as an example of Western culture. And they were sold out in three days. Um, the reputation, the knowledge of, of this book uh, superseded and just 200,000 copies gone just like that. So I think they ought to print some more. Um, but at any rate, I don't think they did. <laughs> The <laughs> communist government printing Pilgrim's Progress. Well, why is Pilgrim's Progress so successful? Listen to what uh, Dr. Emil Calais of uh, Princeton University said. In my own estimation, next to the Bible, which is obviously in a class by itself, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress rates highest among all classics. The reason I have to put the Pilgrim's Progress next only to the Bible is that as I proceed along the appointed course, I need not only an authoritative book of inspiration and instruction, I need a map. We all do. My considered judgment is that Bunyan's masterpiece has provided us with the most excellent map to be found anywhere. Why, having read and reread the book some 50 times, I see that map most vividly unfold under my gaze in whatever place or situation I find myself. What clearer answer could one find to his basic questions? What kind of place is this? And what should I do in this situation? What more adequate, adequate climax to the human quest for truth than entering the celestial city. So I think it's the same thing that I get out of it. I have a sense of progress. I have a sense of a map, a sense of where I'm at. And when I come across certain situations, I can kind of place those situations and things that, that Christian faced as he travels. I need a map. And I think that's why Pilgrim's Progress is so powerful. It puts kind of a picture in your mind of a journey to travel. Now, I've said before that I, in my opinion of what I know about most Baptist churches, the one thing that we lack is the sense of pilgrim's progress, the sense of a journey to be traveled after conversion. Do you know what I'm saying? The sense of sanctification, that we're not finished when we walk the aisle and sign the card. That's not the end. That's the beginning. That's entering at the wicked gate. That's coming to the cross and the burden rolls off your back. But that's not the, that's not the end. You're not in the celestial city yet. There's a journey to be traveled. We Baptists tend to have this sense of salvation as a kind of a static thing that you procure and then put with your collection. There, I've got it now. Not at all. It's a dynamic journey that we're traveling. Can you think of any scriptures that give that would give the sense of a journey that we're traveling? Yeah, and these are the kind of things that stick with you. A verse that sticks in my mind that definitely speaks of a journey is John 14.6. What does John 14.6 say? I am the way and the truth and the life. What's the next part? No one comes to the Father. So now you have two senses of journey in one verse. I am the way, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And what was the context of that statement? He says, okay, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so you also may be where I am. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? 
You know, he had said, I know the, you know the way to the place where I'm going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the ultimate journeying verse. That's your Pilgrim's Progress verse. We are on a journey here. What was Christianity called in the early days? It wasn't Christianity. What was it called? The way. It was the way. And we, as Baptists, we've lost the sense of the way. There's a journey to be traveled. We are not done being saved. <gasps> it's true. We may be done being justified, but our salvation is not finished yet. We're not finished yet. And why do we know that? Because we're not in heaven glorified. We've still got a journey to travel. And Pilgrim's Progress gives a sense of a road map to that journey and the kinds of things you're going to face along the way and the kind of people you're going to face along the way. Interesting characters that come along and they show you some of the issues that you're going to face in your Christian life. Well, let's talk a little bit about... Um, about Bunyan's life, and then we're going to we're going to go through Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to read some quotes, as with as much time as as uh, is allowed. And I just want to whet your appetite. How many of you own Pilgrim's Progress at home? Well, we've got to buy some. We need to distribute them or something like that. We want to get 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 it out so that people can read. Uh, you see the main events of Bunyan's life. He was born in 1628 in Elstow, Bedfordshire, England. Uh, 1644, at the age of 16, he joined the Parliamentary Army. We're going to talk about that. 1646, he left the army and he married the first time. He was married twice. He was baptized by John Gifford in the Bedford Baptist Church. So he's, he's a Baptist. At least a Congregationalist, but probably a Baptist. He was a little iffy on, on baptism. Uh, he wrote a treatise saying uh, separation or division over water baptism, no reason to divide fellowship, something like that. So he was, he was saying, yes, I'm a Baptist, but I'm not going to divide fellowship over it. Um, but we claim him as one of our own. He's, uh, we consider him a Baptist. He began to preach in 1655, married his second wife after the death of his first, 1659. He was forbidden by the government to preach in 1660. He was arrested for disobeying that order and was placed in jail. And there he stayed for 12 years. 1672, he was released from prison, became pastor of Bedford Baptist Church. 1677, he was placed in jail for another six months. Probably during that time, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. 1678, it was published. Uh, first edition, 1678, Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have a first edition of Pilgrim's Progress? If you do, I'd like to talk to you after we get done. I'd be willing to offer you as much as 20 or $30 for it. Um, so, 1688, um, died in August while visiting uh, a friend in London. I don't know why I printed 1659 again. Maybe that was special. At any rate, those are the major events of his life. Bunyan lived a life of tremendous suffering. Lived a life of tremendous suffering. Uh, when John Piper uh, did a uh, talk on Bunyan, he centered in on a quote that Bunyan uh, related concerning the sufferings of his life, and that is to live upon God that is invisible. The sufferings produced that in his life, namely that he would live upon God uh, who is invisible. He was meditating on 2 Corinthians 1.9, in which the Apostle Paul, speaking of his difficulties in Asia, said, we have this sentence of death in ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raiseth the dead. So in other words, I went through these trials in order that I might stop relying on me and start relying on God who raises the dead. And I had inside myself a sense of a sentence of death. That's what Paul says. So Bunyan picks up on this. Now, this is a man who was taken away from his children and his wife during their formative years for 12 years while his children were growing up. He was given some freedom to leave from time to time, but for the most part, he was in prison for 12 years. 
Now, when you think of prison, don't think of some kind of clean place with nice scrub floors and, and three meals a day and all that. It was a miserable existence, a miserable place. It was a place of suffering and a place of trial. And uh, Bunyan, talking about 2 Corinthians 1.9, says this, By this scripture I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and everything as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon God that is invisible. As Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, he said the only way that I could survive and not go crazy was to to pass a death sentence on everything in my life that was dear to me. Everything. And then, having done that, to live upon God who is invisible. And my feeling is that's exactly right. I don't see how anyone who's going through this kind of suffering can make it unless they do that. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Martin Luther said that. Let it go. Pass a death sentence on it. Be willing to let it go. Jesus put it this way. Whoever saves his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it eternally. So what is that that losing? It is passing a death sentence on it, saying I'm willing, to li- I'm willing to lose it. The thing that's so amazing about Bunyan is he could have gotten out any time he chose if he just promised not to preach anymore. If he just promised not to preach anymore, he could have gotten out. So that's almost worse, isn't it? To know that you can walk out today if you'll just promise not to preach. We'll get to that. All right. There were laws about preaching. And he was a nonconformist. He wasn't government approved. And because he was not government approved, he didn't have a license and was not permitted to preach. And so he couldn't, he couldn't deny the calling of God in his life. He couldn't deny the gifting that he had. He couldn't say with a good conscience, I will not preach anymore. And so he stayed in jail of his own choice. 1672, the law changed and he was permitted to become pastor and uh, to preach. But at that time, the laws were against him. All right, so he lived in a difficult era. So Charles brings up the question, why? Now let's see if we can understand it. He was born on November 30, 1628, the same year that William Laud became Bishop of London under the reign of King Charles I. Now, William Laud was a persecutor of Puritans. Now, who were the Puritans? Well, in order to understand that, you have to understand what went on in the English so-called Reformation. I call it so-called because it wasn't a true Reformation. What happened was Henry VIII wanted an heir, and his wife was not giving him a boy. She gave him a girl. Her name was Mary, all right, Bloody Mary, but... He had no son, and he wanted a son, and so he tried everything he could to divorce that woman and get another woman, Anne Boleyn, to be his wife. But he could not make it work. The Pope would not grant him the annulment, and so in the end he said, fine, just taking advantage of the political situation and the era of Reformation and all that. This is after Luther had already begun his Reformation. He said, fine, I'm going to become my own Pope, and I'll grant myself Um the divorce, and that's in effect what he did. The Church of England broke off from the Church of Rome, but it didn't change at all. It's just that it had a new pope now. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's about how it was. He was he was a Roman Catholic through and through, but he just rebelled against the uh, against the pope. So you've got the Anglican Church now, the English Church, but it's structured and it lives and it breathes and it exists just like the old 
Roman Catholic Church. But meanwhile, Luther's ideas are permeating England. They're moving around and people are believing them and they're comparing them with what they're seeing in their own church and saying, we're not reformed. Nothing's happened here. And so they wanted to purify the church of Roman Catholicism. They wanted to purify the church and bring it on into Reformation. And they were Puritans. Probably the first Puritan was William Tyndale. Uh, and sometime I'm going to just do a whole thing on Puritans. Maybe we'll even go a whole nine weeks on them because um, they're just tremendous people. William Tyndale is the one who is, in my opinion, responsible for at least two-thirds, if not three-quarters, of the verbiage of the King James Bible. Uh, he translated the Bible into English and then was killed for it by King Henry VIII. Uh, but he wanted to purify the church, and from him and from his example and from the Bibles that he translated came a whole bunch of other pastors and leaders who wanted to see the church purified, and they were therefore called Puritans. William Laud, Bishop of London, 1628, was an enemy of the Puritans. He hated them. He wanted the church to remain Anglican. There were tremendous conflicts at that point also between the parliament and the monarchy. Parliament is their congress. The monarchy is their king. Okay? There were struggles between who had the power, King Charles I or, or the parliament. As time went on, Oliver Cromwell was elected to parliament. He was a Puritan and a great politician and military leader. He organized the parliament in rebellion against the king. They gained the upper hand. This is the English Civil War. They gained the upper hand on the battlefield and politically and basically took over the country. They executed Laud, William Laud. They overthrew the Book of Common Prayer. Didn't need to use that anymore. The Book of Common Prayer was their their mass, basically. Overthrew that. And they executed the king. They killed the king. And so now Oliver Cromwell was in charge of England. But he was not a king, did not want to be a king. He was called Lord Protector. And so for those years, that number of years, uh, until 1658, he was in charge. Then he died of natural causes. His brother Richard Cromwell um, could not hold the government together. And by the way, while Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector, his whole thing was religious freedom. Uh, he wanted religious freedom for the Puritans and basically for anybody. And even Jews came back to England. They'd been expelled in 1290, year 1290. They were uh, permitted back under the protectorate uh, and allowed to practice their religion. So he was about religious freedom. Uh, Richard Cromwell, his brother, couldn't hold the thing together and there started to be some disorder uh, economically and uh, different problems and it wasn't long before the people were calling for the king. They wanted the king again. And this reminds me of even things we're seeing in, in former com communist Russia. You know, There are a lot of people that clamor for the old regime just because there was order back then. You had food on the tables. Even though it was a repressive regime, it's better than what we're seeing now. And that's about what happened in 1660. They wanted the king back. And so they brought the king back. Obviously, they can't bring that king back. His head has been separated from his shoulders. So his son, Charles II, was brought back and was made king. King Charles II restored to the throne. And right around that time, Bunyan was in prison for preaching. So that answers your question. When Charles came back, Charles II, he instituted laws. And the laws were against the Puritans. The Parliament had turned against the Puritans and they passed laws. In 1662, they passed the Act of Uniformity, requiring the use of the Book of Common Prayer and Episcopal ordination, taking a big step back toward Rome. Um, they're never going to go to Rome, but they're going to go back to that style of worship. 2,000 Puritan pastors were evicted from their pulpits at that time. But uh, by that time, Bunyan had already been in prison for two years. Now, in 1674, there was a declaration of religious indulgence, and that uh, basically resulted in Bunyan's freedom. He had a license to preach as a nonconformist pastor of Bedford Congregation. 
And from 1674 to 1688, it was a time of political instability. He had one more imprisonment, and during that final imprisonment, he wrote, uh, in my opinion, it was at that time he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Died in 1688 um, of a fever. So I hope that explains to you what was going on. The sense was who's going to control the church. There's no separation of church and state when the king's in, in charge. And pastors, preachers, had tremendous influence over public opinion. <laughs> tremendous. There wasn't television. There wasn't radio. There certainly wasn't freedom of the press. And so when a man got up in the pulpit and began to preach and speak, he could sway public opinion greatly. And so they wanted to muzzle that. They wanted to control that. And so Bunyan wasn't even ordained. He wasn't even licensed as a preacher. And he was preaching to unlawful assemblies, nonconformists. They were not Anglican. They were just groups of people who wanted to worship God, equivalent perhaps to the Chinese house churches. They didn't want anything to do with the official state church. They were meeting on their own in barns and in secret places, and Bunyan was preaching there, and he got arrested. So does that explain what was going on in circumstances politically? All right. Um, speaking of his imprisonment and his separation from his wife and children, he said, The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of my flesh from my bones. I mean, that's how painful it was. Uh, he suffered greatly. Now, he had four children by his first wife. Uh, the oldest, Mary, was blind. Um, and so she had uh, a great deal of needs and he loved her. He had tremendous attraction to her and, and a desire to care for her, to protect her and to meet her needs. Uh, and he couldn't because of the imprisonment and that's why he said it was just so very difficult for him. Now let's talk about Bunyan's conversion. As I said, he was born into a very lowly family. He was the son of a tinker or brazier. That's a common laborer. Somebody goes from house to house and fixes your pots and pans. So if you have any holes in your pots, he'll come and, and braise them and fix them up for you. Uh, his father was that. He had very limited education. He was pretty much self-taught. And that's astonishing, isn't it? Because Pilgrim's Progress is probably the pinnacle of English literature in terms of its success and its being in print continuously and its widespread dispersion. Where in the world did that come from? It's almost got to be the hand of God in somebody like that. Just It's astonishing, the genius of this guy self-educated, a simple man, a blue-collar worker. From the lowest rung of society, he said, My father's house was of that rank that is meanest and most despised of all the families in the land. Realize this is English society, and that's, he basically is at the lowest level of society. And his father was as well. Uh, he under, underwent early suffering, 1644, when he was 15 years old. His mother and his sister died within one month, month of each other. His sister was just 13. And by the way, back then, people died at early ages. They really did. Very few children survived childhood. Women tended to have many, many children, and only a few of them would ever make it to adulthood. John Owen, who I mentioned, had 13 children, and none of them made it past age 15. None of them. So they were just well acquainted with death. Uh, it was just like, I mean, everybody knew somebody who had died. I mean, close to them, not just grandma or something. I mean, somebody very, very close. Thirteen children. Uh, his father, unfortunately, remarried a month after his mother died. So, I mean, I don't know how you get something going that quickly, but that was uh, a tremendous grief to Bunyan. When he was 16 years old, as I mentioned, he was drafted into the parliamentary army. That's the Puritan side. He's on the Puritan side. It wasn't because he was a Puritan, but it's because his district was represented by Puritan leaders. And so he was drafted into that army. And there were some harrowing experiences there. For example, one man took his place as a sentry 
and was uh, immediately shot through the head. Uh, so he was standing in his place, and this guy died. I mean, I don't know that Bunyan was watching when it happened, but it's, you know, immediately you're thinking that could have been me. So I was, uh, and he's 16 years old when that went on. So early a life of suffering. But then he went from there, and I don't know if he learned it in the army, but just into an uh, age of unbelief and blasphemy and uh, just riotous living, a life of an unbeliever. Uh, this is what Bunyan said. He said, I had few equals, especially considering my tender years, for cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming the holy name of God. Until I came to the state of marriage, I was the very ringleader of all the youth that kept me company in all manner of vice and ungodliness. So he led a very dissolute life, the life of a blasphemer and an ungodly man. Well, he married when he was 20 or 21 years old. We don't know his first wife's name. It's a mystery. But his wife began to influence him. And we're going to see in Bunyan's life the, the significant role of women in his conversion. Uh, his wife gave him two Puritan books, which he started to read. Uh, one of them was called The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven. What does that put in your mind? Pathway to heaven? Of a journeying, of a traveling from where you are to heaven? Very popular Puritan book and also The Practice of Piety. And Bunyan wrote this, In these two books I would sometimes read with her, wherein I also found some things that were somewhat pleasing to me. Somewhat pleasing to me. So he liked them a little bit. He was a little religious at that point. But all this while I met with no conviction, but the work of God's drawing in me had begun. So it had begun. So we talked about his four children by his first marriage, Mary who was blind, Elizabeth, John, and Thomas. Uh, but then began in earnest the work of conversion. And this was a long, agonizing process. If you want to read about how Bunyan came to Christ, you'd read a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's a spiritual autobiography. And you know something? You read these Puritan biographies on how people came to Christ, and you wonder sometimes if anyone is truly coming to Christ today. Now, I know they are, but we just don't go through the agony and the torment of conscience that they went through. The fear of hell. The fear of being damned. You know, the, the fear of hellfire, the, the sense of your sins kind of rising up to testify against you, the deep concern and anguish and thinking you're finally free from it and then things would come crashing back on you again. We don't trouble much over our souls, but the Puritans did and Bunyan did and he was deeply troubled over his sin and he began to pour over scripture to find some peace from his conscience. His conscience was bothering him greatly. Go ahead. Yeah, but the irony of it is I don't really think there's any assurance in a free will system. None. Uh, I, and I don't have any idea why a free will system can lead to any personal assurance of salvation. I've asked this before. I've said, look, what would you think of somebody that laid on their bed and blasphemed the way he did? And he says here he went through terrible blasphemies. A whole flood of blasphemies, both, both against God, Christ, and the Scriptures, were poured upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. How can you tell but that the Turks, the Muslims, had as good scriptures to prove their Muhammad the Savior as we have to prove our Jesus? So Satan was active in him. All right, My heart was at times exceedingly hard. If I would have given a thousand pounds, that's money, a thousand pounds for a single tear, I couldn't shed one. That's where he was at. So he's got these blasphemies. What I'm saying, and I've said this before, I said, if you visited somebody's on their deathbed, and these kind of blasphemies came pouring out of their mouths, blaspheming God, Christ, the Scriptures, making light of heaven and hell, etc. 
and in the midst of that kind of thing, the person died, would you walk out of that room with any sense of certainty whatsoever that they were in heaven? Now, we can't pass judgment on them. That's not our role. God has forbidden that from us. I'm just asking, would you walk away saying, now there's a person that's in heaven now. They're in a better place. Not at all. That's serious. Well, now, now, yeah. Well, I think when the Spirit comes and the conviction moves, that's exactly what happens. But let me ask my second question. I've asked you about somebody who dies in that state. Question two, how do you know you won't be like that right before you die? How do you know? Perseverance of the saints. So you're going to persevere. You're going to stick to it. Is that it? That's right. And But I'm answering your question. You're talking about election, predestination, all that kind of thing. Uh, whereas we feel that the gospel is open to all, which uh, the invitation certainly open to all. I mean, we make the invitation to anybody. I don't know who's elect or not. All I know is preach the gospel. Preach to everybody. All right? But what I'm saying is, I don't think there's any assurance the other way. Because I don't know how I'm not going to be that kind of blasphemer on my deathbed. Except that God's going to work in me with such a love and such a force and a power that he's going to keep me from that blasphemy. And it's on that confidence that I rest. I don't look inward. I look up to God. Anyway, uh, we could talk about this a long time, but this is deeply concerning to me. The, the very light conviction that leads immediately to conversion. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it may be. I think pride is at the root of a lot of it. Uh, some people just flat out don't want to hear that kind of preaching. And also, when you have democratic religion, which we have in our, our culture, democratic religion, what that means is, you know, the, the power, humanly speaking, is with the people. They can fire a preacher who preaches things they don't want to hear. Used to be you had no control over who. Remember, we've, we've talked about that in each case. Uh, John Chrysostom was basically drafted to be pastor there. Same thing with Bernard of Clairvaux. We're going to see this Charles Simeon. He was put over people who did not want him to be their pastor. Fruitful for decades. But it's just that top-down structure. We have a democratic system. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we need to say is that conversion, salvation, is a supernatural miracle. It's nothing that can be manipulated or produced by certain music. If you play just as I am eight times as opposed to seven, you know, you're going to get that one last person. Um, it just doesn't work that way. They may walk the aisle, but are they converted thereby? We're talking about being born from above, right? Born of the spirit. It's a supernatural act of God. But anyway, in Bunyan's experience, he was wrestling deeply with conviction over sin. And nothing gave him freedom. And it's amazing how active Satan was at that time. And he talks about it. It says, when he thought that uh, he was established in the gospel, there came a season of overwhelming darkness following a terrible temptation when he heard the words, sell and part with this most blessed Christ. Let him go if he will. Bunyan says, I felt my heart freely consent thereto. Oh, the diligence of Satan. Oh, the desperateness of man's heart. For two years... He was in the doom of damnation. So basically, Satan put an insinuation in his mind and he felt his heart lining up with it, saying, okay, I'll sell Christ. He felt that he had committed the unpardonable sin. And for two years, he was discouraged and felt he was going to be damned. And it's an amazing thing. You know, you talk about enter through the narrow gate. In the Pilgrim's Progress, he goes through the wicked gate and shortly thereafter, what happens to him? What happens to Christian? Falls into the slough of despond. It's a little swamp and he can't get out. And evangelist kind of has to come and get him back out again. You see? And that's after he's already gone through the wicked gate. Fascinating. And similar to his own situation. Well, then one day something happened. Now, you really don't know when he gets converted. As you read Grace Abounding of the Chief of Sinners, kind of like there's eight conversions. You know, when does it happen? When do I, you know, I don't know. But um, 
he was plying his trade as a tinker, went from place to place, and he's working in a kitchen, and there's three or four women talking. And he overhears them talking. And this is one of these ma- just magic moments from church history. He overhears three or four poor women sitting at the door in the room talking about the things of God. Later he said, I thought they spoke as if joy did make them speak. They spoke with such pleasantness of scripture language and with such appearance of grace in all they said that they were to me as if they had found a new world. Wow. And so he felt something in his heart as he was listening to these ladies, these unknown heroes of church history speaking and just talking as if joy would make their hearts break thinking about a new world. Now, I remember the first time my professor was talking about this church history professor. He said, what if those women had instead been complaining about the high price of eggs in the market today? Not knowing that Bunyan was overhearing whatever it was they were talking about. What if they were talking about how wretched their husbands were treating them? Or gossiping about something they heard about a neighbor lady. Talking about the church. How bad their pastor is. Popular topic. Been popular for 2,000 years. Um, a- absolutely. Instead of talking about the joys of heaven. What does Colossians chapter 3 say? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Why not talk about those things? Why not? And those women did. And Bunyan overheard. Isn't that beautiful? And so that had a big impact. But I think the decisive moment, yeah, God has it worked out. I'll tell you this. We are wading into deep waters and it's immensely complex how God orchestrates various things. I know this, that uh, as one Puritan said, uh, God breaketh not all men alike. In other words, we don't all get the same treatment from God. We've all got a kind of a different journey that we travel. And he, in that case, in my opinion, chose to use those four women talking. Now, as I said, that was not the decisive moment. I think this was the decisive moment. This is again from Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Now, that's powerful, isn't it? Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants, lacks, my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself and no other. The same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God about the unforgivable sin left off to trouble me and now I also went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Isn't that beautiful? Thy righteousness is in heaven. Now, he went home and searched and tried to find it in the Bible. Now, where is it? Where is it? Um, I don't know that that particular phrase is in the Bible, but it's biblical doctrine. All right. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That says it, doesn't it? Our righteousness is Jesus Christ. First Corinthians says he is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's all things. 
And so he was, he was not troubled any longer. And he was baptized by John Gifford in 1655. He was the pastor of that Baptist church. Along the way, he also testified to Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Now, how many of you have been strengthened and empowered by a commentary? Um, I don't know. It's just a different age back then, but that's what they read. And he read Luther on Galatians. And this is what he said, The God in whose hands are all our days and ways did cast into my hand one day a book of Martin Luther's. It was his comment on Galatians. I found my condition in his experience so largely and profoundly handled as if his book had been written out of my heart. I do prefer this book of Martin Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible before all the books that ever I have seen, as most fit for a wounded conscience. So he just, God used Luther's experience. Uh, Luther, Luther was autobiographical when he wrote commentaries. I mean, he, you could just feel the wrestling of Luther's own soul as he would write. Uh, Luther called the book of Galatians my Katie von Bora. That's the name of his wife. He said, I love this book. Galatians set him free, uh, freedom from the law, freedom from, from troubled conscience. And it was also instrumental in Bunyan's life as well. Now, shortly after Bunyan came to Christ and was baptized, he started preaching. And it was amazing because the word got out that the tinker was preaching and people wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, he related to them. He was a blue-collar guy. He spoke their language. And so huge quantities, there's a lot more of them than there are of the kind of upper-crusty type people. Um, and so lots and lots of them came to hear him preach and they were blown away by what they heard. He was an amazing preacher. He had a, a singular gift with the English language. Now, I've given you a bunch of quotes from Bunyan. I think you ought to just read through them and see. He just had a special gift of putting things in a pithy way that was memorable. And that's, I think, the meat and potatoes also of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. This one guy, Charles Doe, who heard him, it said, Mr. Bunyan preached no New Testament-like. He made me admire and weep for joy and give him my affections. Uh, in the days of toleration, when it was when you were allowed to go listen to Bunyan preach, he would get a crowd of up to 1,200 to hear him preach at 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, once in prison, a whole congregation of 60 people were arrested and brought in at night. So that was in, when it wasn't toleration. He, from time to time, would be free to go out and preach. A jailer would let him out. He'd go out and preach. Somebody caught them, 60 of them, and they were arrested along with them. And he was trotted back to jail along with his congregation, 60 of them anyway. Um, he was remarried in 1659, and his wife, Elizabeth, was an amazing person. She stood alone to defend her husband against the magistrates. Uh, I love um, this interaction between her and the magistrate. The magistrate asks her, will he stop preaching? That's the one question. Realize that's all these. You've got to answer that one right, and he's out. Will he stop preaching? My Lord, he dares not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. This is what his wife's saying. Come on, I want him home. He needs to be home with the girls. He needs to be home with me and take care. No, she's not thinking about that at all. She's thinking about God and his call on her on his life. All right, what is the need of talking? So the magistrate said, well, what are we talking about then? There's nothing more to discuss. If he's not going to stop preaching, go away. There is need for this, my Lord, for I have four small children that cannot help themselves, of which one is blind, and we have nothing to live upon but the charity of good people. Matthew Hale, with pity, asks if she really has four children being so young. My Lord, I am but mother-in-law to them, having not been married to him yet two full years. These aren't her children. These are by the first wife. Uh, indeed, I was with child when my husband was first apprehended, but being young and unaccustomed to such things, I, being uh, smayed at the news, fell into labor and so continued for eight days in labor and then was delivered, but my child died. Can you imagine being in labor for eight days and then the child dies? 
You know, sometimes I wonder about our generation if we really even know what suffering is sometimes. I mean, we have so much comfort in our lives. Eight days of labor and then the baby dies. Hale was moved, but the other judges were actually hardened and spoke against him. He's a mere tinker, they said. Blue-collar guy, what's he doing preaching? Yes, and because he is a tinker and a poor man, therefore he is despised and cannot have justice. One Mr. Chester is enraged and says that Bunyan will preach and do as he wishes. She answered, He preacheth nothing but the word of God. Mr. Twisden, in a rage, He runneth up and down and doeth harm. Not so, my lord, it is not so. God hath owned him and done much good by him. This lady was something, I'm telling you. The angry man, His doctrine is the doctrine of the devil. She, my lord, when the righteous judge shall appear, it will be known that his doctrine is not the doctrine of the devil. Wow, isn't that powerful? What a courageous woman. Bunyan's biography commented about her. Elizabeth Bunyan was simply an English peasant woman. Could she have spoken with more dignity had she been a crown queen? Isn't that amazing? So he had the godly woman uh, supporting him all those years in prison and caring for those children and somehow making ends meet. Well, he was in prison for 12 years. He wrote many things. And at this point, I think we ought to look a little bit at Pilgrim's Progress with the few minutes we have left. But, you know, you can buy the book. It's still in print. Um, and read it. I would urge you to read it. It really won't take that long. How long do you think to read Pilgrim's Progress through? Probably 15 hours at most. Maybe more like 12. So that would be, what What do you think? A couple of weeks. About a week, if you're really at it. This is how it begins. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able to contain any longer, he brake out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? They, they can't understand the anguish he's facing. Everybody comes to Christ alone. You don't come in family groups. Everybody comes to personal faith in Christ. So his face is away from his house. And he's breaking out in a lamentable crying say, cry saying, What shall I do? In this plight, therefore, he went home and refrained himself as long as he could that his wife and his children should not perceive his distress. But he could not be silent for long because that his trouble increased. Wherefore, at length, he break his mind to his wife and children. And thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, said he, and you, the children of my bowels, that means uh, emotions. I, your dear friend, am I am myself in myself undone by reason of a burden that lieth hard upon me. Moreover, I am for certain informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin, except the which I yet cannot see, some way of escape be found whereby we may be delivered." He's afraid of hell. He's afraid of destruction, that he's living in the city of destruction. Well, what happens is she tries to talk him out of him, give him a good night, you know, some warm milk, go to bed in the morning, you'll feel better. He wakes up and he's only more tormented. Finally, he can't, he can't be with them anymore because they think he's gone crazy. The neighbors come in, they, they all think he's gone crazy. And finally, evangelist comes and points him to yonder wicked gate, the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And he's going to meet on his way people who came in but not at the gate. And that ends up becoming a, a key thing. People who jump the fence. You know what I'm saying? They never went through the narrow gate. And what is the narrow gate? Well, it's Jesus Christ. 
You know, it's coming through Christ, coming through the narrow gate, not through the wide one. So that's how he begins his journey. Along the way, he meets a man called Interpreter. Now, we, I've skipped over Slew of Despond, etc. The thing that's so beautiful about Pilgrim's Progress is not just the sense of the roadmap and the journey, but the wisdom for the journey along the way. Interpreter shows him some symbols of the Christian life. Some symbols. He shows him a picture of Christ, but then he shows him a room. And the room is covered with dust. Covered with dust. And in the room, which is covered with dust, is a man that's sweeping vigorously. He's got a broom and he's sweeping and sweeping. And he kicks up such a cloud of choking dust that Christian, as he stands there, is literally choking on it. And finally, he, the man stops. And then somebody comes in and pours water all over the room. They wait a minute and then somebody comes and cleans up the dirt. Now wet. Well, what does it mean? Well, it talks about moral reform, changing your life apart from the grace of God. All you're doing is rearranging the dust. There's no real transformation that's occurring in the soul. There's change, but not real change. You're just rearranging the furniture of your life. But when grace comes, then the real cleanup can start. It's a picture of sanctification and the work of grace in your life. There's also a picture... Uh, I don't have time to read all this, but there's a picture of of um, of a man with a fire, and there's a there's a there's a furnace, and there's somebody pouring water, trying to put the fire out. But as he does, somebody's adding fuel to the fire, and so it's a struggle between the grace of God and Satan, who keeps trying to quench the flame, but he can't do it because there's sufficient fuel to keep the flame going. This is a picture of God giving saving faith to you, and then sustaining faith through every trial. Satan wants to extinguish your faith. He's trying to pour water on it. He's trying to extinguish it. But he can't do it because God keeps supplying fuel to the fire. That's a beautiful picture. But the interesting thing is God, in the image, is behind a wall. You can't see him. You can see Satan pouring the water on the flame. It won't go out. You can't see God sustaining the flame from behind the scenes. But he does. The depth of insight is amazing. Luke 22, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Simon. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Hmm. I prayed to who? To God. And he's going to keep your faith going, Simon, through the worst trial of your, of your life. When you deny Jesus three times, your faith will not be extinguished. No matter how much water gets poured on it, your faith will endure. And that's how I know I'm not going to blaspheme Christ on my deathbed. Because God's going to keep that fire going through every trial. It doesn't matter how much water Satan pours on it. Again, an image, a picture, but it sticks with you. Yeah, go ahead. And it's funny you should mention that because the final thing the interpreter shows is the man in the cage. And the man in the cage is the most terrifying part of the whole early part of Pilgrim's Progress. The man in the cage, let me read what he says. Interpreter brings him and he sees the man. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. He didn't tell him. He said, talk to him. Hmm. Then the Christian said to the man, what art thou? The man answered, I am what I was not once. Well, what wast thou once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, somebody claiming to be a Christian, both in mine own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then... Uh, even joy at the thoughts that I should get thither. Well, but what art thou now? I am now a man of despair, and I am shut up 
in it, as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. But how camest thou into this condition? I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then Christian said to an interpreter, but is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. It's interesting, interpreter never gives an answer. He just says, talk to him. Ask him. Nay, said Christian, pray, sir, do you. Interpreter then, said the interpreter, is there no hope, but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? No, none at all, said the man. Why, the son of the blessed is very merciful. The man answered, I have crucified him to myself afresh. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done desperate to the spirit of grace and therefore I have shut myself out of all the promises and there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Interpreter, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? The man, for the lusts and pleasures and profits of this world in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw me like a burning worm. Here's the key question. But canst thou not now repent and turn? God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, himself hath shut me in this iron cage, nor can all the men in the world let me out. O eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Then said the interpreter to Christian, let this man's misery be remembered by thee and be an everlasting caution to thee. Well, well, said Christian, this is fearful. God help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I may shun the cause of this man's misery. Now it's interesting, he never addresses whether the man sees things rightly or not. You see, the point is he believes there's no hope for him. He has absolutely no assurance of salvation. Now assurance is something we're going to talk about when we get back into Romans. Uh, it's somewhat separate from saving faith. The Puritans were very sharp on this. It is possible to be a Christian and have no assurance. But it leaves questions, doesn't it? And it certainly leaves a warning. And that's exactly what interpreter intended. I'd like to close tonight with the description of them crossing the river. And I'll tell you something. I've seen a number of people die since I've been pastor here. And I give counsel to people out of the image I have here. Basically, Christian crosses the river with a friend. The two of them die together. And one of them goes easily across and one of them does not. They both make it across. They both get into the celestial city. But one of them has a real hard time getting across. And it's Christian that has a hard time. He can't seem to find the bottom. And he's afraid of getting overwhelmed. But his friend goes through with a good confidence. And I've said even recently to someone, I said, it is possible that you're going to die. But realize that it's for this very reason that you have trusted Christ. It's for this very reason, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Oh, yes, I do. Well, listen. If the Lord chooses to take you home, and he may do it just out of grace so that you can see him face to face, if he chooses to do that, you can either die easily or you can die with great difficulty. Now, what I'm saying is you can go through that experience and guess what? On the other side, you're in the celestial city. But why go through it faithlessly? And that's what happened with Christian. Now listen to what happens as they cross the river. 
<clears throat> now, I further saw that betwixt them and the gates, entering into the celestial city, was a river. But there was no bridge to go over. The river was very deep. At the sight, therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were much stunned. But the men that went with them said, You must go through or you cannot come at the gate. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there were no other way to the gate, to which they answered, Yes, but there hath not any save two, namely, who? Enoch and Elijah, who have been permitted to tread that path since the foundation of the world, nor shall until the last trumpet shall sound. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to despond in their minds and look this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all of the same depth. They said no, yet they could not help them in that case, for they said, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. You hear that? You're going to find it deep or shallow depending on your faith. Wow. Then addressed them, Then they addressed themselves to the water. And entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. That's a quote from Psalms. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. Also here, he in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. Sometimes when people are dying, it's like they have no faculties. Their, Their minds are not clear and sharp any longer. And so he was that way as he traveled through the river. Um... But all the words that he spoke still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they that stood by perceived, he was much in troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. For ever and anon he would intimate so much by words. Hopeful, therefore, here had much ado to keep his brother's head above water. I think of myself sometimes when I go to a bedside like that as hopeful. Trying to keep somebody's head above water. You know? Trust in the Lord. Focus on Him. It's a good place you're going to. You know, that kind of thing. Finally, as they go on, they manage to find the bottom and travel on through. And at that point, the angels welcome them. It says, Once they've got out of the river on the bank of the other side, they saw two shining men who there waited for them. Where? For being come out of the river, they saluted them, saying, We are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those that shall be heirs of salvation. And thus they went along toward the gate. Now you must note this, that the city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up, up that hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up by the arms and also they had left behind their mortal garments in the river. For though they went in with them, they came out without them. And so then they travel right up to the gates of the celestial city. It's a marvelous thing. Read it for yourself. If you don't have a book, go to a bookstore and purchase it. It's a tremendous help to your Christian life. I love the section where he comes to the cross and at last the burden on his back rolls down into the empty tomb and is seen no more. Then gave Christian three leaps for joy and said, at last I'm free from my burden. He gets his robe. It's symbolizing righteousness. He gets his scroll, which is assurance, which he loses later and then gets back. I'll tell you something, it's a deep story, and you ought to read it. Any questions of what we covered tonight? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.